You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. You're catching us in the middle of a sermon series where we're looking at these letters that Paul wrote to Timothy, and the series we're calling Grateful. And the thing we're trying to dig up and understand is how it looks and what it, how it works in a person's life to really live on the grace of God. We know about the kindness and the generosity of God. Maybe some of us don't. If you don't, there you go, now you know. But it's a whole other thing to learn to live on the generosity and the grace of God, right? This is what Paul is sharing with the young Timothy, his protege in ministry. Last week, we looked at how the grace of God gives and gives to an uncomfortable point in our life, even. But that God's giving is actually our salvation. Think about that. You are saved because God is generous. You are one of his own in his household because he's so gracious and so giving. That's the basis for the entire Christian life. That is the starting point. It's also the starting point for the rest of what Paul writes in First and Second Timothy. He builds on this concept. So you're going to have to lug that around with you everywhere we go now as we study the First and Second letters to Timothy. Um, in the second chapter... Based on God's generosity, which, Christ, uh, which sent Christ into the world to save sinners. We saw that in chapter 1. Because this is so true, Paul continues in chapter 2, beginning, first of all, then. Which is, should be a signal, right? If you see then, or therefore, or, which brings me to my next point, you have to wonder, well, what was the first point? Based on the generosity of God, sending Christ into the world to save sinners. Based on that, first of all, then, of first importance... Verse 1 reads, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. Does this seem like a strange next step for you um, in a teaching about the grace of God? I mean, if you're paying attention, or maybe it's just me, but I read this and had to do a kind of what, come again, what? A second look, when talking about the grace of God, teaching about God's uh, his generosity to come and save sinners, to then call for prayer for all leaders, all rulers, to switch so quickly to politics and those who are in power. Doesn't that seem like an interesting next step? It caught my attention. As I thought about it, spent time in the first chapter with Paul, and then coming to the second chapter, I realized that grace in our lives, when it functions in our life, it actually has pinch points, tight spots for us. We wouldn't necessarily say it out loud. You're not going to hear this in the coffee hour after the service. So people aren't going to admit this. But we assume that God's grace has limits, right? I mean, not so much for us. Of course not. No, it's boundless and wonderful. But for those people... Those jerks, those people who have power and abuse other people, God's grace has limits. We wouldn't say that out loud, but I think sometimes we assume that. God's grace can only go so far, we might say. But what about those political leaders? What about those who are entrusted with, uh, with public power, elected leaders, people who lead churches like myself, people who lead families, communities? Does God's grace apply to them too? Hmm. 
I think that's what Paul's pointing us to. So much for us, even in this day and age, grace can have this pinch point for us, right? With leaders. But to get our heads around this, there's, there's two things we need to consider. First is this. We need to consider the scope of God's grace and just how scandalous that scope really is. It's hard to wrap our heads around it. And it's even uncomfortable. God's grace reaches everyone. Everyone. Even the worst of sinners, like Paul admitted, which I'm the first of, Paul said in the first chapter. Even to leaders and rulers, the point being God's grace reaches not just to us, but to others. Paul says all of this. Look at verse 3. Let me read this for us. This is right and is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants all sinners to be saved, even the worst of us, even me, even our political leaders, those who we think, oh man, they've really messed it up this time. God's grace comes to save them too. The reason being God desires not to um, just crush and make fun of evil, otherwise we wouldn't be here, but God's grace is such that he actually wants to overturn evil, to undo evil to make all things right in our lives and in the world. Not for people who are wrong to be proven wrong and, and shamed publicly, or to gloat and stomp on their grave and really feel better about our position. Those people were wrong and we were shown right. That is not the way of God's grace. God will accomplish his justice, his setting things right, with his generosity, with his grace. That's how this will happen. And when we live on God's grace, something really strange happens to us. It's not just some agenda that gets accomplished. But when we live on the diet of God's grace, we become transformed. The problem in us begins to change, begins to be healed. We become the kinds of people that God uses. He recruits to accomplish his purpose in the world. Not a people afraid of not having enough whether it's enough power or enough money or not getting our way, not a people who are afraid of any of that, but a people who have been so filled with the grace of God that they're not threatened by what seems to be a scarcity because they know they have everything in the kingdom of God that they need, all the wealth, all the riches, all the power in Christ. That's a different territory to live in. And so we're not threatened by rulers or powers but our life, a life in the kingdom, is a life centered on the way God does things. And the way God does things is generosity and grace. That's how we came into the kingdom in the first place. So, therefore, like we do every Sunday in the prayers of the people, we pray for our leaders. We pray for those who are given charge to govern things in our lives. Praying for them is not an endorsement of a candidate. We're not declaring what side or what political position we're on in the mess that is today. And also I want to say prayer for a candidate does not neglect justice either. God will hold leaders accountable for their actions. It's super clear in scripture. And leaders are warned, be very careful. You're stepping into a, a role that God has given you that if you abuse, you will be held account, accountable for. So with all of that in view, it's not an endorsement but it's also not in the neglection of justice. 
We can pray for people knowing that God will not only hold these people to their commitments and their roles, the sacred trust, but that also we can stand in the grace of God and pray for their good. We can honestly say, Lord, we want the best for all of our rulers and our kings and our governors. We want the best for them. We want to seek the best for them. And so we ask that God's grace, listen to this, Riz, because we should all practice this. When we pray for our leaders, we ask that God's grace would transform them in the same way that it's transformed us. That it would sustain them and it would guide them the same way that it has sustained and guided us. There's no them. It's just us. So from that place, we can ask for the grace of God to bless these people. See, this is the peculiar thing that grace does to a people. Um, and by definition, grace is always undeserved. So the people who receive grace aren't people who have an, an excellent uh, resume or CV or something, who have, like, I've been to church this many times, and so I qualify or something like that. Grace always comes to sinners who don't deserve it. That's how it is. It's undeserved. It's over the top. It's uncomfortably over the top, in fact. And what grace does when it pours into a purpose, person's life is it changes them into a steward, a dealer of grace. Someone who doles it out just as freely it was given to them, so they deal it out to others. And not judges, but stewards of God's grace. Recipients of something we don't deserve. A salvation we didn't earn. And therefore, a people who are free to seek for the good of others and to pray that God would bless them with that good. Not just the good of themselves, but the good of others. This is the amazing generosity of the grace of God. Christ died for all sinners, not just us, but for others. Paul comes to this later in verse 5, which we'll get to in a second, so hold on to that. But second, I want to, I want to point out in this uh, opening passage, do you notice how Paul ended this first uh, couple of verses? So that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. Based on what we know from the first chapter that we dealt with last week, if you haven't heard it, um, go download the podcast, catch up, it's super quick, you'll be, you'll be like caught up, read that first chapter on your own. But based on everything we learned in this first chapter, it's likely that what Paul was dealing with as he says this was false teachers in the church. It's one of the things he's talking about in the first chapter. And these false teachers were speaking up and propagating a view of God that was not only false, but was also harming the witness of the church in the neighborhood and in the world. Another plug for catechism. Go get your theology worked out, okay? But when you have people in the church who think they know enough um, to speak for the church and they do so poorly and they do so in a harmful way and they, they, they actually like give a, a bad witness of the church and for the world and we're all thinking of like those people on Facebook or those people on Twitter or somebody else other than ourselves, can we all just say it's us? We gotta be really careful with that. The witness of the church is us. man, I should like really be careful about how I'm speaking up for my brothers and sisters who are sitting right next to me, making sure that I understand that we are one body and what I say, I say for them and what they say, they say for me. Man, Twitter and Facebook would be a lot quieter, I think, if we took hold of our baptismal identity. Yikes, that was not on the paper, but I just felt like I needed to say that. <laughs> this, these false teachers in the church that Paul's dealing with, he calls, he, he calls for a 
uh, when, when, when that witness is restored and when people are actually like um, praying for their leaders, Paul says, we, he, he, they do so for a quiet and peaceable life which isn't the American dream. I think we might read that and go, oh yeah, we get that, the American dream, not so. It is a warning against false teaching that misrepresents God and also misrepresents the kingdom of God that is overlaying our lives and settling our lives as we center in it. The peace of God and his kingdom is so unlike the peace that is out there in the world and sometimes the peace that we misrepresent. His peace is a kingdom. It's not built up by us. It's received by us. It's a kingdom that's characterized by, as Paul says, all godliness and dignity. It doesn't win by cursing other people. It doesn't become violent in order to meet violence to win. God's grace makes a life finally at rest in godliness and dignity. That's what God's grace does. It's a life so shaped by God's giving and his giving and his giving that it's a life that's able to see that his giving through them enables them to see the pain in the world and be, to be a giving vessel through yourself to the lives of other people. To see the brokenness and the pain in the world, not just in yourself, but to see that pain and brokenness in the world, even in our leaders or wherever, and saying, God died for these people. Christ came for them too. And I am a conduit of that grace. It's a life, if you think about it, much like Christ's. When we look at Jesus and we all say, how beautiful. Even if you don't believe in Jesus, you can't deny looking at his life and say, how beautiful, how wonderful. His giving, his graciousness. That is the same generosity that is being offered to us. God the Father, his grace through Christ that we see is so beautiful. That is our salvation, not only for us, but for other people. And all are invited into that. Let's look at verse 5 in chapter 2. For there is one God, there is also one mediator between God and humankind, Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus himself, human, who gave himself a ransom for all that was attested at the right time. A mediator is someone who stands between, in the gap between two parties, two people. Maybe who can't come to see something on the same, in the same way, to some agreement. A mediator stands between these two people. God is holy and righteous and maybe stands on one side with all that is beautiful and good and true. And then there's the rest of us who stand somewhere on the other side dealing in selfishness and pride and greed and vanity and all of our favorite sins, you name them. And Christ taking on humanity's flesh and all of its woes and all of its strife and all of its sin, Christ bridged the gap by entering into humanity in his incarnation, taking into himself all of the darkness. In fact, there isn't a sin and there isn't a depth of hell and death that Christ hasn't been deeper still, that he has run out in front and grabbed these people, bringing them back to the Father. He took on humanity's flesh. And in his self-emptying, his humiliation becomes our nobility. His weakness is our honor. As Hilary of Portier says, in human flesh, God what a mystery. If that doesn't like compute, um, join the rest of Christian history. That is the great paradox, the great mystery uh, that is worth spending your entire life contemplating. God human? 
for us? Dig in, you'll find the gospel. But Christ, human for us, offered himself as a payment, Paul says a ransom, which is actually a technical term that specifically talks about either a payment or something that's freeing someone from bondage and captivity. Christ is that payment that is loosening up your bondage because you couldn't and only he could. The generosity of God has paid for that so that you could be free, released. To what would be the next question? Freed up for what? To be a shrewd dealer? To judge everyone else? Now that I'm free, I can like go and be a jerk in the world? No, the grace of God frees us from bondage that we would be the conduit of that grace in the lives of other people. Christ didn't come to condemn us, though he is perfectly justified to. So how could we turn to our neighbor even when we're justified and condemn them? How can we? How, how? It's irrational. It doesn't even make any sense. If we are truly receiving the gifts of God, we have to truly give them as well. In fact, I would say if you look at your life and you're not seeing the generosity of God on the output side of things, I would question if you really get what's happening on the inside, the input side of this grace. God's grace received is verified when we give out God's grace, in other words. Grace calls us, friends, to a different way of living, not just thinking about how wonderful God is, but it actually works itself into our bones, our habits, our language, our postures toward other people. It leads us into life as it ought to be lived, real life. To receive God's gifts for ourselves and become the kinds of people who seek those gifts for the good of others. That's the kind of life that God's grace makes even the kind of life that would pray for political leaders. Oh my goodness, how wonderful. God's grace is our welcome into salvation. And this morning, it's not something we just observe behind glass, but it is something that God is opening up and welcoming us to in his table. We step into this aisle to become recipients of that grace, not so that we can just be like this holy huddle who stays at res and enjoys coffee, and then when we go into the world, we totally forget that, but know that our lives would be so transformed, not by our willpower, but by the action of God on behalf of us and through us and in us, so that as that cross leads us into the world, we participate in that same movement of grace into the neighborhood. Who is God leading you to? as we go out these doors. Who is it that you will encounter that will encounter the grace of God in you? Who is it that maybe you're holding some grudge against that you could actually pray for instead? Who is it that you have withheld kindness and generosity and forgiveness maybe that God is even now pressing you, loosen up, I've given you all that you need. Cooperate with my grace for the sake of other people. Friends, we leave here agents of grace, stewards of grace, bearers of the generosity of God, people who point to Christ in everything that we do. Look how wonderfully generous our God is. Our whole life is like this. Look how wonderful he is. Let us go into the world changed by this table, not just holding it to ourselves, but freely dealing it, not in fear, but in the hope that truly Christ does come for all people. And we get to join in his mission. 
You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.